Welcome to Generation Film, where each in each episode, Generation X and Generation Z pick a film to go head-to-head, a battle royale according to a chosen category. It's who wore it best of film criticism. When we're done, you get to vote. Will you vote for your generation, or will you be convinced to vote otherwise? This episode, our category is Australian film. I am Ellen, and with me is my partner in podcast, A to the D to the U to the B, Alfie Haddon. How are you going? So, what have you picked as Australian film? So you're, we should say, 1980 to 2000. Yes, I get a I full get... 20 years because uh, of my age and superiority. <laughs> and 2000 onwards for me with the fresh new breed coming in every single week that I can pick from. So, of the films from 1980 to the year... Well, it's actually 1999 is my cut-off point. Sure. But I have chosen the 1992 film Romper Stomper, directed by Jeffrey Wright. And you are going to talk about... Snowtown, directed by Justin Kurtz. Well, I should have looked at the year before I came, I believe, 2011. (laughs) (laughs) Refer to your... Refer to the DVD case. Yes, 2011. (laughs) Something else that we have yet to explain about how this little game of film criticism is going to work is that we will um, nominate a film, we'll argue its merits... So nominating from our particular generation, argue its merits. If we feel that we are losing the argument, we're allowed to go to our wildcard film. So we've both seen the films that we're that we've put up, that we've nominated, but um I don't know what your wildcard film might be and you don't know what mine is. That's it. And at this point neither do I. <laughs> I'll just see how it goes. I actually thought that Romper Stomper didn't need a wildcard yeah, film. That's how good a film this one is. Sure, so shall we do Romper Stomper first? Um, you can make your opening statement. <laughs> yes, I can make my opening statement. I'll make mine, we'll get into it. Yeah, okay. So I think that the strongest point that I've got, and you know, like this is Romper Stomper versus Snowtown rather than Romper Stomper standing alone is that I don't think that they could have made Snowtown had Romper Stomper not been made. I think Romper Stomper actually sets up a... Well, school of Australian film is the wrong way to say it, but maybe a tradition, you know, maybe a trend. Yeah. In Australian film, which is to look at things that are confronting about Australian culture, to make film on very um, limited budget, to make films that are set in the in urban environments and again you know the expectations when it comes to Australian film is that we see those you know blue and orange wide sweeping landscapes you know maybe a man on a horse wearing a hat and there's none of that in Romper Stomper it's completely the opposite of that that opening sequence where um you know we we follow people skating through a train station um immediately sets up that we're looking at something about Australia and Australian culture that is very different to what we expect. So we should probably give, if you can give a brief description of what the film is actually about for those <laughs> who haven't seen it, and then 
and then go Everyone into your shot by day. shot, go back and go into your shot by shot analysis. Sure. So Romper Stomper, uh, for those who have yet to watch it, and I would urge you to go out and watch it, although it is R-rated, I believe. Oh, yes, it is. Checking the DVD cast <laughs> myself. Stellar research we've done. <laughs> um, so Romper Stomper stars a uh, very, very young Russell Crowe as the leader of a skinhead gang. He um, and his gang are violently racist and threatened by Asians coming into what they claim is their country. Uh, yeah, and it's a film that has incredible contrasts in uh, its action and its violence and then its moments of actually kind of quiet and contemplation in some ways so yeah those are some more points in its favor as well as me doing a little bit of a um of a summary of the plot i mean you know we just the film follows you know particular events uh amongst the members of of hando which is russell crowe's character uh, in his gang um you know, their attack on a Vietnamese family who have recently bought the pub, their, their local pub, and um, oh, that's probably all I'd say. I mean, yeah. 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 Because it might not be about all that much. <laughs> uh, no, see, I think that I see. I think that that is the thing: is that that there's so much. There is so much more going on. Um, you know, even as I said in that opening statement that he made, where, that Hando's character, Russell Crowe's character, and again, don't think of Russell Crowe as you may have seen him in. You know, the water. <laughs> And if you're admitting to seeing the water diviner, then, well, you might be listening to the wrong podcast. Um, no, don't think, don't even think of uh, of Gladiator, Russell Crowe. This is Russell Crowe, where you see the incredible potential of this actor. And you know, like I would actually, you know, then go on to say, he took that ability and that potential in a different direction than you would hope having seen what he's capable of in this film but i was making a point about it's kind of more it's deeper or more resonant message and that statement that he makes right like his very opening line is this is not your country and i think again in terms of you know what australian film looks at that um there's a, an incredible irony in that statement. I mean, it's not his country either, and yet he is claiming it is his country. He's saying, you know, white people belong here and belong to this country. And um, I haven't necessarily read a lot of what Jeffrey Wright had to say, the director had to say on the subject, but to me that makes those those bigger points about Australia's sense of, of dispossession, of um, unease uh, that we can't necessarily lay claim to this particular country. Again, just in that opening sequence, um, the way that the camera moves around so that we're given point of view shots from from members of the gang and then from 
their their Vietnamese victims, it puts the audience in these really uncomfortable positions. And again, I wouldn't be necessarily advocating this as a first date film or as a film to watch with your mum, but very rarely is good film those sorts of things that mm. you know like yes film has a place as being pure entertainment this is not um about being having uh, a snack and some time out it's definitely going to challenge you to think about about um you know, racism and violence in australia which you know unfortunately what is it now 24 four years later am i doing my maths right um it's still incredibly relevant um and this then started a discussion uh, amongst me and some of my friends about you know romper stomper incredibly relevant central actor to in the possibly not um and that's not i mean that is a diss on russell and he did go in a very different direction to what the potential this film suggests um, would be. Well, I was actually incredibly surprised that you chose this as the Australian film because one of the, in terms of this category we're doing, one of my biggest criticisms was that I don't feel like it needed to be in Australia. I don't feel like it had much of a sense of place in Australia. All of the urban environments, as you said, are sort of, completely generic to me i don't feel any sense of place there other than the sort of grimy dirty not nice to look at you know graffiti laden places and a few maps of australia i mean you get the one um pub scene which is going to be in every australian Mm. movie but other than that you can't i couldn't really grasp why for australian films you had chosen this and my rebuttal for that first scene was I thought it was very abruptly stylistic. Um, you get them skating down and these sort of shots from the wheel of the skateboard and then this very abrupt cut into slow motion, dry ice filled with this completely insane sound design, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it just throws you in there. And then another sort of shift into this Obviously, train spotting sort of came later, but that, you know, into the faces of the characters reacting to something that's happening, and it looks like they've been set up and told, okay, then react now. And I thought that opening scene just threw me a lot as to what I was going to be watching. In terms of its entertainment value, at least, David Stratton, um, in his infamous review of it, claimed that the director wanted it to be entertaining and set out to make an entertaining film out of this subject matter, which he perceives as being very troubling and which, you know, I can sort of see where he's coming from in that regard. Well, I I think it's interesting that you make that point about it, um, you know, that I've nominated this as the best Australian film from that particular time period uh, and it not seeming very Australian. And I think that in itself is what makes it such a... Uh, like, it, it is unlike any other Australian film. I absolutely would concede that point. But I think the fact that this group of skinheads has taken skinhead culture, taken it directly from... I mean, they look like British punks, 
and they're meant to look like British punks because they there is there is no argument to make that you can claim that country as their own. And, you know, they are trying to claim Footscray, you know, like it's it's labelled as being Footscray, it is actually Richmond Station, and I know that at the time of release, that was actually a point where people went, oh, no, you know, you said it was set in Footscray and this is Richmond. I mean, if you recognise the train stations, that's an issue. If you don't, then it's <laughs> not really, is it? you know, it's pretty much splitting hairs. And the fact that Footscray you know, at the time and even now is such an incredibly multicultural um, part of Melbourne. I think that it is set in Melbourne rather than set in Sydney as well. Um, Does shift the focus again from, you know, Australia is an incredibly beautiful landscape, which I'm not denying that it is, and it does make beautiful backdrops for, for movies about, you know, men in hats riding horses across seemingly empty land. But that's not the place that we live in. The place that we live in is this place of, in, of um, heightened tension about whose country it is and the fact that, that Hando and the skinheads have to take, um, a, you know, a reactionary culture from Europe and try and make it work in Australia and try and make it work in an, in Australian cities. And it doesn't. It uh, they, they can't. They can't make mm. it happen because I, I made that point about those wide open spaces. And I think that one of the things that that Wright and that the um, and the filming of this has done is that they've made um, those echoey, noisy, wide open spaces actually the warehouses that the that the gangs take on so we, we get these really wide sweeping shots but there are still walls and a ceiling and um the we the as you mentioned the noise or the the soundscape before um the kind of the repeated theme the haunting kind of soundtrack as well as some of that um distortion of sound inside again makes that other place that weird antipodean space but in urban environments and i think that that would again so to kind of in a very long-winded way counter your point about australianness it is the weirdness or the lack of like so you know none of this actually makes sense that's what australia is really about in terms of its landscapes and trying to understand place possibly yeah i just and it's interesting, the soundtrack sort of feeds into this point. I don't think the soundtrack was haunting. I think when there was original music, it butted in like, you know, stood out like a sore thumb because it's this very more late 80s than like <laughs> anything else. And then the rest of the soundtrack is made up of these annoying white supremacist punk songs, which, you know, uh, you expect for, you know, uh, action scene or something, but then it's every action scene has is underscored by one of these songs and then it started to feel very gratuitous after a while just this over and over again they would play you know and a different song that you know while obviously it has ties to the film's plot doesn't really speak to anything that's going on on screen and i feel like that sort of feeds into the i just think it's it seemed more to me to do with disaffected youth than anything to do with Australia and that's why I, I didn't 
feel like it had to be set there for any reason um, because the characters in it, um, I've forgotten the young girl's name. Um, it's, um, it's Gabe. Gabe, Gabe yeah, yeah, Gabe. Yeah. Um, you know, just her whole backstory, which is just another layer of bleak in this incredibly, incredibly blue film. <laughs> yeah, in oh, I've got a point tone. about blue. It's so blue. Um, but, you know, just her backstory with her being sexually abused and she's got a drug a junkie ex-boyfriend and all this and there. And the other characters have no backstory to speak of whatsoever, which is, you know, we'll get to that later. But um, I just, I felt like it was much more to do with this, you know, neo-Nazis being a good way to represent disaffected youth rather than them being a good way to represent the struggles of Australian sort of race relations. Yeah, see, I think that, um, again, the relationship that triangle relationship at the centre is a really interesting one because um, it gives an opportunity to contrast in in pace from the violence of the you know the fights with the skinheads or the violence um, you know that they are planning um, to we do see that kind of um, familial triangle with Gabe, Hando and Davey, where they both, Gabe and Hando, are responding to Davey, which is Hando's best mate, his offsider, in that um, in that very paternal way. Um, so we see, uh, you know, as much as we see little bumps, which, you know, you're making that point about the disaffected youth, I mean, that's more him, who's a character who's much, much younger with, you know, his completely bald head and skins tattooed between his eyebrows. Um, you know, like, he is the really the representing the disaffected youth, whereas um, that, that triangular relationship between Davey, Hando and Gabe, and, you know, you know that my, where one of my obsessions lies is in this, um, uh, these ideas of, of gender representation and particularly to do with... Um, kind of toxic max- masculinity, or or those mas- those connections between Davy and, and Hando, which seems to be the most real relationship in the film, is the way that 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 um, the relationship between those characters play out. You say that the characters have no backstory. Davy's grandmother is German, so this idea that this idea that he is then part of this skinhead gang and um. You know, again, I don't, I don't know how much to give away or not, but when Davy and Gabe go to, to Davy's place and, and we see her, and uh, her being Davy's grandmother, and Davy saying, oh, yeah, my grand doesn't really like, you know, all the neo-Nazi badges and stuff. Of course she doesn't, you know. She's come from a place. And again, that she is now here in suburban Melbourne says to me a lot about about Australia and Australian culture. Sure, I felt like that was kind of on the nose. And it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but this, I want to talk about the characters because then I don't think there's anything to any of them. And I think we can go full spoilers. I think it's the only way to really talk about yeah okay properly. yeah but, yeah, um, yeah yeah it culminates in this great set piece which is a great scene the final scene of the film with um gabe and hando and 
the Davey. other one, Davy, um, on the beach with you know the Asian tourists filming them in these acts of horrible violence, which is again a little on the nose, maybe, but um, it is a great set piece. But then I've written down here that um, it's great and it's you know thrilling, but I do not care enough about any of these characters for me to be fully invested when you know there's moments of horrific violence and you know emotional trauma are happening because I don't know any we're thrown into Hando's world without you know we get nothing from him in terms of his actions or his lines they're all in this sort of like in the character that he's trying to portray to everyone else in the film that's that's all we're getting I don't feel like we get any sort of insight into his real motivations forever, you know, getting into this sort of thing. And if they are just genuinely that these beliefs that he has that, you know, this is his country and that you know, the purification of his race is being threatened, then I think that that is slightly problematic in terms of what the film is trying to say. But, I mean, you've, you've already pointed to that, um, you know, that disconnect or that lost youth element of it as well and I think that um, Hando definitely I mean he's definitely a caricature but because Russell Crowe brings I mean so much of so much of the performance is a, is a physical performance and I imagine that they must have had to spend a lot of time and money putting on those tattoos on Russell Crowe <laughs> on his arms and on his back but um uh, you know like that 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 scene, that fight at the end is so much that fight for the love and the recognition of Davy. I think Davy is the character that we feel for or that we connect to. And um, that's difficult, I can say, again, concede, that it's difficult because he doesn't have a lot of script. But he does a lot of watching and we watch him do, we watch him watch. Um, and we watch the way both Gabe and, and Hando care for him. And again, we're put in this position where we care for him. So when then he is then when his relationship with Gabe is threatened, um and he turns into you know, like it's him that power struggle between he and Hando and you want Davy very much you want Davy to come out on top even though you've been drawn to this very unlikable um character in Hando all of the way through and yes it is that it, it's quite an odd setup the Japanese tourists watching them down on the beach and taking photos and those sorts of things but those final shots of the really the oddness of this country where we've got Hando's point of view watching the waves going in and out. And again, yes, stylized in its use of colour. But I think that those sty those stylistic elements in with colour again are very I mean obviously very conscious, but um go to address those expectations that we have that Australian films look a particular way. And again, I think, you know, the use of that blue is a direct, you know, indirect contrast to the orange and yellow that we've seen in film 
in colour film in Australia up until it's that too point. Blue, <laughs> it's just because it's not autumnal. For being that blue. <laughs> no, I it's l- like they've put a piece of plastic over the camera lens and then just shot and, most of it in that and it really got on my nerves. No, and you know, and I don't want to jump ahead to your film, but the first, the, like, when I watched Snowtown, I saw that same blue filter and I went. That is exactly no, what music. they use. That's exactly what they did in Romper Stomper to try and make this not so bright and colourful and 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 well lit the way that Australia is or the way that most of Australia is. Uh, I feel like I might be losing <laughs> this part. Well, it's just. I, I mean, we've got. I wrote down this that we had the audience in character of Davy, and he's obviously our character to go for. I didn't like any of the characters here. Not that you're really supposed to, but you are supposed to elicit sympathy for him. There's no doubt about that, and you you can't like him. That's a problem as well, because. Is they're all significantly flawed. I didn't like Gabe. I didn't like Hando. I didn't. I found them all to be, you know, deplorable as as you would. But I, not only on a surface level, I didn't really. It didn't. They didn't get under my skin in a way. Say American History X, which came out a few years later, which is very much the, you know, younger brother to this film. I think does that a lot better in the audience in character there being the younger brother, which essentially Davy seems to be. Yeah. Um, There's a lot more, you get some of him, you know, going to school and doing these sort of things that make you, that make you want him to, that make you believe that he could have some sort of life outside of this. And so, yes, you want him to succeed in breaking free of all this horrible stuff that's going on. Whereas with Davy, the only, the only way we get that is with him at his grandmother's house, and I did not feel like that was enough at all because he just goes and has sex with Gabe there, and that's the only sort of scene you get there. And I just I didn't like any of them, and I didn't feel sympathy for him. Whereas with Snowtown, the audience in character, who is the protagonist of the film, is you know from the outset is you can completely identify with his actions along with the actions of every single character in that film. And I think that is why that is the biggest contrast between these is I could not identify with a single character in Rumpelstumper where I can see the point of reference or the point of sympathy with every character in Snowdown. Every character? Every single character, even the most deplorable. No! Okay, so you're going to have to make that case really strongly for me because, and it seems that we have switched to Snowdown, and I guess we'll probably come back and make points of comparison as we go through, but um, I could not, I can't remember what the, what the boy, you know, the dad figure, you know, the actual Snowtown dude. What's his name? Uh, John Bunting. No, the no, the central cap. So oh, the, the central, the, centri- the protagonist. Mm, uh, not the young boy. His the boyfriend. You know, the dad figure, the one that comes in, the one that kills John, the kangaroos. John. John. Bunting, yeah. Oh, how can you feel any it's sense not, of it's connection? It's not sympathy, to him? but it's a point of reference because he's a sociopath. I think we should quickly talk about. The yeah. craft of yeah. Rumbus Slumber, and then we can take a break and then come to Snowdown <laughs> right. afterwards. Because 
I'm, I mean, I feel like I'm trashing it too much. It's not. I'm not. I don't think that Rumpus Zombie is a bad film. I think that there is, that it has some sort of merit in it being, you know, and it is somewhat entertaining as a film. And I, but I don't feel like. I feel like what it has to say, at least from my point of view, having seen films like American History X or The Believer, which was even a little later, um, that it has anything to say about these um, gang relations or, and as I've said, I don't think it has anything to say about Australian culture. So it's sort of levelled out to me as being a very sort of um, experience that I've had before and I've seen done better, um, which could have been alleviated by some craft, but I think that that was let down in places there as well with the colouring, um, the incredibly sort of, um, the shaky cam in every yeah, action see, scene. I was going to say, I like the way the, the camera moves. But the, that first sort of major action scene, which is the chase or from the... the bar, the chase yeah. back to the house, the, the house. chase through the house, yeah. the chase out of the house, yeah. which goes for a total of about 15 minutes. Yeah. It's all filmed in exactly the same way. No, with this because all of a sudden... shaky cam. No, no, just... no, no, because it's not shaky cam to make you spew because you're following them shaky cam and then all of a sudden you're underneath them and they're jumping over the camera or all of a sudden you're looking down on them from, you know, from in between the... Um, the two warehouses as they run along the, the laneway. So I think that, no, because there are, there are instances in other films of shaky cam, like shaky cam, I have to stop watching this, leave and go and vomit because I'm motion sick. That it, that It's not that the shaky camera is it's not absolutely that, no. not to that it's, extreme. It's okay to watch, but I got bored with what I was seeing because it was, again, the, the punk song score and then doing these characters doing essentially the same thing you get shots of multiple characters doing the exact same thing climbing up a bunch of tires to get to a window and you get four characters doing that and you don't need to see all that and with the same sort of shots and the same sort of camera work I don't think you I think he's made some questionable choices in what you said the pacing of the film with the loud and the quiet I think that it's loud for it and then it's quiet for a big you know stretch and I think that the loud bits are a little too over the top for the kind of this realism that's going for which is um another point of comparison where I think Snowdown comes out on top um but yeah I don't think that he's made the smartest choices in every scene I think the one um the biggest positive I had in that scene was the character moment of Davy going back for the jacket. I think that that was the best sort of character moment probably in the whole film because I got the most out of that. Um, he asks Gabe if, yeah. he's got, if she's got her jacket that um, was stolen for her previously and then goes back into, you know, a large degree of threat to get the jacket for her. And, then, and they could have just had that and you would have known, okay... He's got feelings for her, you know, he cares for her and he feels this connection. But instead, they've got maybe three other moments before they ever voice their feelings for each other where he's looking at her, going out a door or, you know, longing after her in various degrees, um, which, again, I thought were unneeded. And there was this repetition in actions 
and that made me feel like you know it made solidify that it didn't really have too much of a point to make um so I'll, i'm going to try and separate the craft of the storytelling <laughs> from the storytelling bit i think that 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 point about him and his feelings for her if you you were talking before about American History X and how we're put in this position of the little brother. I think if we think about Handon and Gabe as, as mum and dad and Davy as child or as son rather than as little brother, then there is a there's a fairly long journey that he needs to take to stop seeing her in a nurturing or in a maternal role. You know, when he cuts his hand and she fixes his hand, you know, she, atten she attends to his hand and, you know, we see him um, keep that piece of fabric that she's wrapped around as the talisman, you know, like, because she's, she's healed him, she's made him better and all of those sorts of things. And um, I think, yeah, that, that it's quite a long, it's quite a big shift that he has to make from from responding to her in that maternal way, in that nurturing way, to then being actually sexually attracted to her. So I think that's why there is those that there are those numerous. You know, there's actually a progression of well, how his feelings. I don't feelings think it is a progression. Though. I think it's the same thing a few times. Well, give me more of the maternal stuff or that sort of part of the relationship because. There was that sort of one part, and it's this, you know, um, amongst, you know, they throw chaos on other sides of it, so it's not really, doesn't stand out too much to you, whereas this repetition goes to the other extreme of being, of beating you over the head. I think that in terms of the craft portion of that, that it's those directing choices, choices of what to show, when to show, how many times to show it, and in what different ways that I think... He's faulted in some places. Um, and, you know, part of that comes with, I believe it's his first, was it his first yeah, film? Yeah, And his only good film. <laughs> I looked on his IMDb page and it is no. a lot of <laughs> very questionable titles on there. No, see, Metal but. Skin is, is like Crumpelstomper, but significantly more nihilistic and... and much much harder to watch and then didn't he do the um sam worthington Macbeth in the ganglands Wasn't he did that him? yeah which was not well reviewed either no i haven't seen that so i can't talk to that but uh um there was a point that i wanted to make about that length of the chase scene and i think that there you know generally we see a chase scene we've got where either the pursuer or the pursued so we're either in that position of i want to catch this person or I want this per or I want this person to get away and I think in this we're on neither side we don't actually want you know we're, we're not positioned to be sympathetic to either the skinheads or to the Asians in this in this because they're both making the wrong choice they're most making bad choices and they're both being violent and destructive in in a way of kind of like oh i'm going to solve violence and destruction with more violence and destruction you know i think we have to see that to see the how flawed those choices are so i think i you know yes i still feel like i'm losing this <laughs> well no that's that's true it's a fair a, a fair point and and exactly thought about it that way but that's still you don't need it to be that long or with the those sort of the actions that they choose to put on screen to get that 
point across necessarily, I don't think. You know, again, I think when you go and you see, and we, you know, we see significantly fewer scenes of the Vietnamese, um, but when we go into their restaurants and they're speaking in Vietnamese, and we, but we see the similar dynamics in those groups of in those groups of men, and similar dynamics in terms of. Um, strength and shaming and all of those sorts of things, which again, you know, like are just things that I am continually fascinated with. And I think um, to, you know, maybe final points on, on, um, on character at least in this film and the development of character and the way in which that, you know, then leads to the tellings of the story, the telling of the story um, that, that Hando rejects um, Gabe, when she, when he realizes that she has epilepsy, and and that again, Davy is willing to stay with her, despite of this, you know, when when their focus is on perfection or their versions of perfection, and that Davy is willing to stick with her, um, and to care for her in the way that she was caring for him to begin with, uh, that you know, like it gets a little weird, but there is that um that nurturing or that um, care both ways. And I think that's what endears Davy as a character, uh, you know, to us, to the audience we see. Does he reject her because of that epilepsy? Because before she ever has a fit, he freaks out and throws the, the pasta because she cooks it. it's Italian. <laughs> yeah, I which know. Is just, I was... <laughs> why? It's just... He's just a evil. A parody. And he's yeah. Just, yeah. And I feel like most of the characters there are just... That's it. The surface is what you see is what you get. And I think that that is a deliberate filmmaking choice because of the shallowness of the belief system. You know, they are... They, are all yes that is a ridiculous scene that he freaks out about pasta and you know pasta and pasta sauce but that it that's how ridiculous his belief system is and i think yeah i think that it's there also, to make us see i think that often the interesting thing about films of this type though and this sort of subject matter is the what is the psychological you know, undercurrent, what is the motivations behind these belief systems and why people in a modern society, in a society perhaps like Australia or like modern America, subscribe to it. And I don't feel like this at all tries to tries to get at that, that uh, psychological... Doesn't it come from broken family? Like, isn't that what they're trying Maybe, to... Maybe, <laughs> but does he have... I don't know if he has a broken family. I don't know anything about his family. But I he's trying to recreate family in that in that group and particularly you know with the the Davy Hando Gabe relationship he's trying to recreate that kind of family unit is what is what I would say yeah (laughs) I just I don't feel like you get enough anywhere to I mean all his lines are just spouting rhetoric and the director treats him reading Mein Kampf to Gabe as like this big like look at what's happening here and she is looking all innocent and thinks it's like nice that he's reading to her like you were saying with this sort of nurturing and that sort of thing and it's it's given all this weight like all the sounds sort of drowned out and I you know I take issue with that as well I don't think there's enough separated from the character and you know the filmmaking I think that's why possibly people 
may have taken issue with it or at least debated the fact that is this you know a problematic or even a racist film because i think there's not enough separation there for for some audiences and i can see where those sort of lines might get blurred for some people yeah for me i think we i always respond to hando as an irony he's a dramatic irony he doesn't realize it but we as the audience realize that because he's so convinced that he is defending his country which it isn't and i you know like i i think we need to kind of wrap yeah. up my talking about Robber Stomper and move on to your talking about Snow Channel. Yeah, maybe we should have a break there. But I think um, I come back to my original point, which is I don't think that Snow Town could have been made had this film not been made. Right. So I'm not sure that that, I, you know, whether that is a, a you know, a point in Romper Stomper's column. I think that you can see kind of a progression from Wake and Fright, which is outside of my... Um, uh, generational boundaries, otherwise I might have nominated that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like, that started to, or certainly it did, um, expose elements of Australian culture that Australians were uncomfortable looking at. And I think that Romper Stomper does exactly that as well. I think it's that the last point I would say is that that it's, it is this sort of low-budget film and that independence shows in ways that are not necessarily you know it can be endearing but there's a lot of the police car are you talking about the police car we'll just put this hedge in the way no one will ever know that it's a white panel van just cuts um you know simple sort of continuity errors and you know they'll cut from a hand moving down with something in it and then you know it's the same angle but it's somewhere completely different just um, things that you would think you would see while making it, and I think the more important aspect of that aspect of that was its its homage, its influence, um, which I think is very significantly a Clockwork Orange in, especially in the home invasion scene, which feels like yeah. it could have been taken out of another movie. That it's so, and he Hando goes in, and I think sort of defies his character by becoming this sort of like like the lead from A Clockwork Orange, he's humming along to the classical music and he's, you know, saying these sort of s- smooth... He has a couple of snappy sort of lines Quippy to, the, lines, to yeah. the dad there, which is completely out of tune with what he does normally when he's in, enacting this sort of violence. And I think that influence has sort of been put in there rather than sort of laced. Yeah, woven in. I guess, you know, to come back to the, the, the ideas part of that you know why does that there well you know attacking the site of domesticity which doesn't look very homey either you know it's a very cold and a very um disjointed sort of house for it to be gabe's father's house and her family home but i guess that that's you know like and it is it is it's a that i have actually just looked at my notes and (laughs) it looks opera question mark a bit much underline. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that the position and the movement of the camera, even in that, and even again in the contrast between what, um, you know, Davy and Gabe's, you know, blossoming attraction in that scene, cut with Hando, and 
And there we do see Hando kind of, caught, again, caught up in his own, um, just, you know, he gets way, he's not in control of the destruction there in the ways that he has been before. He's not the leader there. He's just one of the boys crashing the, the Japanese car. Um, do you want to have a break? We should take a break and then we can get to Snowtown. Snowtown. All right. Sixteen-year-old Jamie, who is a um, one of I think three to four-child family, uh, single mother in Western Australia, I believe it is South Australia. South Australia. Okay. <laughs> um, it's the same place as One Night in the Moon. Didn't you see those backgrounds? <laughs> sure. Um, and he. A man named John introduces themselves to the family through the guise of um, having a romantic relationship with the mother, um, and it is established that uh, through you know his the, his hatred for pedophiles, which seem to be uh, prevalent in this community, uh, the family has meetings about you know how to deal with these sort of characters. Um, that he is taking his own sort of vigilante justice against these sort of people uh, based on true events of what they call Australia's most notorious serial killer. Um, so, you know, the actual events that happened and, um, yeah, that's our general story for Snowtown. But um, I picked it... Um, as uh, the Australian films category I, I took as not just being the best film produced and, you know, set in Australia, but that has, you know, some sort of very significant ties, which is why, as I said, why I was, um, surprised that after watching Rumpus Stumper about uh, those ties to Australia, but, um, I think that what sets this one apart from Rumpus Stumper, and yes, there is definitely some... Um, follow on from that in terms of its its uh, realism and its I think um, yeah it's sort of muted the colour palette the stuff that a lot of Australian films had in that that sort of era and still do in the, a lot of these very dreary sort of dramas I think what sets it apart is on one hand the craft of the filmmaking and just the general sort of um, the choices that are made to alleviate that bleakness in terms of this sort of mystical quality that they give to those, to that realism, the sort of, the choices that are made of what to show on screen and the brilliant soundtrack and all these elements come together. And on the other hand, um, unearthing sort of um, issues about influence, familial ties, Australian reactions to criminality and you know this these um the events that are taking place um in this small suburban town i think it's the perfect setting to explore those sort of ideas um where i thought 
Rumpusumpa displayed that criminality, and you know, I feel like this has a very takes a very you know firm stance on how these sort of communities react to that sort of thing and what can come from this sort of group mentality reaction influence and we take a lot of pride in that sort of family the mateship all of that sort of thing where can that become a problem and i think that's where that's how this is set apart from other films of its nature. Yeah, it's interesting that you make that point about um, the way that Australia and the, and Australian films, in particular Australian films, about criminals. And, um, you know, I was talking before, I mean, Wake and Fright's not about criminals, but there's certainly criminal activity or, you know, unpleasant activity. Yeah. Um, and the progression through, um, this is... Did you say 2011? 2011, yeah. So, Animal Kingdom comes prior to this, doesn't it? Because Animal Kingdom's... Uh, They're very, very close. Yeah, very close. And so, again, I think that, that, uh, you know, you could could do a dot-to-dot between some of those films, between Wake and Fright, Romper Stomper, Animal Kingdom, and then Snowtown. I think the interesting thing about Snowtown is this, the realism. And we talked in Romper Stomper about the stylistic elements and the ways in which there are elements of non-realism with the sound and, um, you know, slow motion and all of those sorts of things. Um, the, the, ca- the positions of the camera make you quite aware that you're still watching a film. The thing that um, I... I couldn't I had to half watch the end of Snowtown it was so real and the fact that it's based on a true story makes that an even more uncomfortable viewing experience and you know again neither of the films that we're talking about here are pleasant viewing experiences but the viewing experience for me with Snowtown from the op- from the opening sequence all the way through is this I don't know that I can keep watching this. And as I said, in the last, probably the last fifth of the film, I was half watching because it was so full on in its, in its depictions of, uh, it was so real. And uh, it was really difficult to watch because of that. I think that the way at least I get around it and I've watched it multiple times and a lot of people when they say it so they couldn't imagine watching again um, I think the way it gets around that is this sort of it's not necessarily removal but it is this mysticism that establishes very early on with uh, Jamie has sort of a voiceover where he explains a dream, a recurring dream that he has about uh, him finding a man slumped in a chair. He goes up to ask if he's all right. His throat is slit. There's a chihuahua sitting in his neck, yapping back at him. And every time I watch it, and that on the soundtrack they include that voiceover, which I think speaks to you know the the use of the music in the film. But I, I there's all these different sort of things that come to me when, and you know that's often a cheap way to get in some metaphor or something like that. But I think that it just brings this sort of this mysticism that makes that is everything is just that little bit with the vi- especially the visuals and the sound that little bit more of sort of a memory or of you know this little bit of dream state sort of thing because it's so horrible and so and there's you know it's so very recognizable that I think 
they're adding these sort of things that I think are very directed, very directly related to memory and dream is also something we can identify with. So it doesn't take away from that realism, but it does give this sort of this, it creates a little bit of longing to know more about these characters. And even though they are real people, just, you know, what necessarily is going to happen to them and, because you can identify with them so much from, you know, the dialogue and stuff. I think the visuals and the sound adding that extra sort of layer and that in leads me to be able to watch this film, you know, more than once. very much as a film and not as an experience where I have to, you know, sit and, through yeah, something. And not as a where they've made a fiction film of something where they could have made a documentary, not that you would have wanted to have seen Snowtown, the documentary. Mm. Um, I, in my, again, in my watching of it, I, I have great empathy for the mother, but I also, I, she, she pisses me off because she doesn't do anything. She doesn't do anything except find, uh, uh, you know, so she goes from, from the, um, the the man that takes the photo, you know, he's supposed to be babysitting the children and he takes photos of them in the, it's the naked photos of them. And then she, he, she moves from him to the serial killer boyfriend. And I just think, what are you doing? She, <laughs> she doesn't know that he's a serial killer. <laughs> but she has to tell, she has to know that I, there's something wrong. I, and again, that Well, he's glazed, a sociopath and that's, that's the very reason that he's able to convince people to, you know, be on his side, that he can do stuff like that. Her lack of agency and her inarticulate... I mean, it again, it's very recognisable. It's very real. It's also very frustrating. And it's interesting that you've talked about the mysticism to me because I... Um, I also found it quite jarring that they were a member of a... Is it like a born-again Christian? They Certainly they go to church and and the John character is there at... Ch- that's how they meet, is through a church or, or through... through s- yeah, I don't think it's, it's... I don't think it's cultish or anything like that. No, 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 no. It's just straight-up Christian. Just, yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's the, so there's that element too. I mean, I think... Again, in the you know in the points of comparison with Snowtown, we are talking about region, you know small town regional Australia rather than metropolitan city Australia, and so we do go. Um, again, it's not the outback. We're not looking at um, you know we're not looking at Hugh Jackman's character from Australia, but we are we are further from a city view of Australia um, and there are shots where it could be suburbs of big of capital cities but it's not it's still it's very much regional town isn't it I think yeah I think that is yeah it speaks again to that that sort of the familial nature of it and the mateship and that sort of thing it is that's, you know, your small town community is this one big family and everyone's very proud of that sort of thing. And um, the the scenes that they have with them all in the kitchen, there's essentially their meetings, how do we deal with pedophiles and what are we going to do to them? And it's never, you know, I think... And the way that they talk about it and no matter what sort of socioeconomic status you come from, 
I think that's what I'm saying in terms of seeing a point of reference with every character is that some characters are saying, no, look, you can't just, you can't just go and, you know, abuse these people. You can't just throw them, you know, you can't be violent towards them. They, you have to come from a point of understanding. They don't say it in those, in that sort of manner, but every, every, everything is represented in these sort of meetings that they have there. And I think, that is very important because they're all, you know, fully Australian characters. They're all swearing like nothing else and they, drinking you know, and, and drinking and shouting. But every sort of, you know, standpoint is represented in there, which I think was important in not making it too oppressively. This is Australia's attitude to these sort of things. I think with the mother character... Um, it sort of, I get where you're coming from, it does relate a bit more to John, but she, after fi- after finding out that this man is taking photos of her children, she, you know, says, I, she goes over there and is swearing, I, you know, never see me again, I can't believe, you know, and just losing her mind, as he would. Um, but then John, in seeing that and in seeing what she does, being the, you know, psychotic and sociopathic, says, okay, well, I'm taking this to the next level now because this is, you know, this is what she would want to do and I have the removal from any sort of human nature to be able to do this, so I'm taking it to the next level. And he, and that's, I think that's when uh, the psychology of that comes in and I think that this film does delve into that, the psychology of that character so that we have reference to him, whereas the psychotic characters in Rumpus Stomper, I don't think we have that sort of ex- exploration of their headspace. Now that you're talking about it, I'm remembering a lot more. And there are points that there, okay, there are points that I want to pick up on then. His, um, his response, again, you know, we're going full spoilers, but his response is to mutilate kangaroos and, and marinate them and then dump the bodies all over the, um, the doorstep. Do you, again, when you were calling out elements of Rompostomper as being, you know, a little bit over the top, a little bit hard to believe, they're actually to do that to kangaroos when we're looking at Australian film. And to take that one step further, we'll mix up this, um, like this mix of mutilated kangaroos with a totem tennis ball and that I just thought that that was so heavy-handed it was so obviously making we're making a bigger point about Australian culture because we're you know we're messing with kangaroos and totem tennis to a to a point you have to say that yes that is the case but also I think as with everything in the film, you can take it from a point, a sort of visuals and that we can all identify with of kangaroos in that sort of place in Australia are essentially just vermin that like there's so many around and they cause damage. So um, if you can find the roadkill or, you know, we don't really know. I don't think we see them actually dying. I think they just pick them up and... Oh, okay. I thought he went and shot them. But possibly they go hunting but um and, again you know, i again i was probably ball, yeah these images of suburbia and that that Subverted, is yeah you know while it is obviously saying yeah, i get uh, commenting it in I get australia it. it's also i, was, I got Australian. it when i saw it yeah <laughs> but i think that you can 
the interesting thing about that is that you can take that so easily both ways yeah. of well yes that they might be making this comment but could it just be that this is what a very direct portrayal of something happening in this person's backyard yeah. which you know I feel like it is tying that very fine line but for me it is always on on that line I also remembered that when you were talking about those scenes in the kitchen that there's so much in this film and you talked about that too about the familial and the domestic but this the noise oh I, I could not listen to another loud lip smacking chewing of mashed potato or and you know again um they use, the the filmmakers use the food to to you know reiterate the poverty or the socioeconomic status of that family but it was the um let's make this character unlikable Put aside the fact that he's a sociopath and he, and he kills people and puts their bodies in barrels, he never closes his mouth when he chews. And then it just adds that, uh, I, again, the heightened sound of of that and talking with his mouth full and all of those seemed to me to be less than subtle um, directorial decisions or less I, than subtle character development decisions. also be that because of his nature that, you know in this sort of society he's seen something like that and he's seen that this is this is what the blokes do and that's how they talk and they chew on their steak and they talk while they do it and he sees that his mind can't process it in terms of what he's seeing he just thinks to be this sort of person i need to do that and he does it so well that you know um all these people can identify with him or believe that they can i think that the very deliberate decisions to show just very it escalates very slowly in terms of what he's doing that could be considered off kilter and you get obviously we have a little more of a sense than they do because we're removed from the situation and we know some parts of the story but just that very slow progression um when and in the u.s this was marketed as a horror film which i come back to when i talk about this a lot because it's so completely wrong to do that. But, Doesn't um, have any of the features but, of a horror And that's why film. people, I think, were disappointed in that regard because it's this very slow introduction that there might be anything off with this character. And I think it's those those little things that I think he's... I took it more as he's picked up on something from the society around him and he's, and he's encapsulating that all in him. And I think that is very important in terms of the representation of the Australian culture is that, you know, him with his mateship and his masculinity, it's all encapsulated in him and because of his sociopathic nature heightened just just enough so that we can all see it very clearly. I think, um, and I remember I asked you this after I saw it, that well, after I watched it, I, the time frame that they they must have taken to film this because there is a significant physical change in the central character. And I think, um, you know, that's that, that ties into this, uh, you know, John coming into their family, being able to feed them, and then this central character actually gets, you know, he gets so much bigger. He really mm. feels out. And I, um, again, that I guess that realism that... Uh, 
that that is in every element of this film. They must have they must have had to do something there. I mean, it's not a fat suit because it's quite mm. realistic. <laughs> it's very realistic. So yeah, I mean, this this film you can tell that they have taken their time to make it. Yeah, every craft decision I think is why I can keep coming back to it. Is is obviously so well thought out and down to the casting and especially of that lead I've never seen him before I think since in I mean he's been in Australian sort of TV and that sort of stuff here and there but his just his face and the way that and his sort of one note expression through a lot of the film which changes very subtly but I think you know that they might have chosen the face for him and it feels like they've chosen that what they want that to look like and then he's embodied that I think his performance is great along with everyone else but down to I mean shot beautifully Adam Arkapur who's now done Macbeth just won a cinematographer's award for that and you know so on and so forth is getting millions of jobs is I think that the way he shoots these suburbs and giving it that sort of mystical quality is extremely important as as I've already said the music I think is one of the biggest sort of facets in creating the mood and the slow sort of escalation in its sort of cycling drum beats and it and it's pulsing and it gets gets a little bit more vigor and sort of layers in term as you move along with the story and I think all that craft coming together along with this undercurrent of psychology and all these characters I think is why I still I still don't know whether I could watch it again (laughs) still and I still was it was so very disturbing in in a way that was about those characters you know like I I criticized it before for making too um too overt a point about we're trying to make a bigger point about Australian culture, but I think in the end, for me, that isn't there. It does come down to the specifics of this situation, you know, this particular instance of, of a serial killer. And yes, the corruption of that, of that young man into that, but that is, that's where it ends. It's not, it doesn't have a bigger point for me, to say about Australia. I think that's where visually I think it, it suggests its points. And I think that's that was one of my biggest sort of draw cards with it is that and in those final scenes where you've got you've had this horrendous violence and it does sort of go into that, you know, thriller not necessarily thriller, but this very brutal, horrific crime sort of story for a little bit there and it spends a bit of time in that world but as they as those characters come out um and they travel to this big sort of warehouse where they dump the bodies and that sort of thing and the the characters break down which i think is a very emotional moment and still is a payoff to the yes the specific story but i think you need that as well those final shots are this this sort of warehouse that like in rumpastomper is sort of broken down and you know um, stands out in as they pull out to these big landscapes that you, That's you what would I was see in say, yeah. your Australian films, yeah. so I think it's very important in this aspect to show, you know, the removal and they've shown the destruction of this family unit and this sort of community 
in the visual shot of this desolate warehouse amongst the large Australian landscape and sort of, you know, the the cars moving along the road away from all this. I think the way that he can sort of just suggest that visually without having to, you know, beat you over the head with anything, just um, in maybe in it is in terms of this story, but I think that that visual payoff to the earlier themes is quite powerful in that regard. I think I, um, you know, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but I'm taking all of your argument and making it a different point, which is that, um, in, you know, like in that vastness of the landscape, things get lost and things get go unseen. And I think that that's probably the point there, you know, that this serial killer was able to get away with this for a long period of time because in isolated Australian communities you can get away with things and things go unnoticed and things go unseen. So if there's any broader point about Australia and Australian culture, it's probably that, like that there are still isolated pockets um, of, you know... people with limited intelligence and sociopaths where these things can happen. And I don't know that I think we don't, I don't know we'd there. need to be told that story because that's the, that's the story payoff in there. And I, I don't think that's, that's the, the sort of payoff of the, of the thematic relevance of the film. I think that's, that's saying, well, this is how we could do that. And this is in this instance, that's how this sort of stuff happens. And I think, that it is a very sort of double-handed film in that way that it's got all of this story is on the surface and you can follow it as this um, crime story and it has that payoff there. But I think the undercurrent, the payoff is in that same, in the same shots and in the same sort of um, elements of the film. I think both pay off there. And I think that thing that, that what you're talking about is more to do with the the story rather than what the f- anything that the film has to say in terms of its... I think I'm more talking about its psychological relevance perhaps in those final scenes than the Australian relevance, but I think that... So then we come to the point about why does it have to be said in Australia? How is it an Australian film? I mean, it's I the question... It's, it's the it's just the question that you asked of Romper Stomper turned around on your I think I think I've spoken to that a bit. That, that's that, the, the kick-off point for all that thematic um, tension and all the ideas developed within are very much from those sort of relationships and in that sort of setting that we all recognise in Australia and that I think um, typified in Australia where they may not be um, in other places. I think, you know, if this was in small town America or something, you've got these very sort of, at least to us, these very inherent, um, you know, colloquialisms or like very specific things that they all have to do to be a part of those communities. Whereas this, I think, is much more about the interaction with other people. Yeah, I mean, there is a Southern Gothic kind of element to South Australia in in a way that um, hasn't been tapped before. And I think that that's, you know, like this this real event did allow for some exploration of, of some of that. So, yeah, I think you're right to say that it is, it there's a an expectation of what we would have if it was, you know, small town America. This is small town Australia 
we haven't seen that unless, you know, we do have some expectation now that small town Australia as represented in film is going to be a little bit, it's going to be sinister. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be levels of threat there, but um, yeah, I've lost my point. Something. I think that's a pretty good, pretty good place. To wrap it up, Ellen's feel like completely lost what she was saying. Um, yeah, okay. I I'm really interested. I just want to know, like, obviously, what would your backup film have been? What was your wild card uh, film? Animal King. Yes. Yeah, I, I thought that Animal was the King. obvious choice. Yeah. No, it just took me a while because I thought yeah. my personal choice of as again films produced and set in Australia would probably be the Babylon. Yeah, see, that's what I But I don't I think th- that that quite has that Australian see, angle that I was see, I, I wanted... I was going to try and introduce because it, I think it's quite... Well, I think we've chosen two films that do have these kind of similar thematics and similar kind of level of discomfort to watch and those sorts of things. And then I I have the luxury of being able to nominate either The Castle or Muriel's Wedding. I was probably going to go with The Castle because it was less obvious, because it's, again, small budget um, and, you know, it's funny. It's funny, and sometimes Australians we can be funny. So yeah, but the very different. Like it would have been a really different discussion <laughs> if I'd gone all of a sudden. Oh, hang on, <laughs> I'm backing out of this one on Rumpus Stomper, and I'm going to talk about the castle. Yeah, well, that's the vote to have. It's Snowtown versus, versus Rumpus Stomper. Yeah, which Australian film is going to win? Hopefully, we will be posting it on our To Be Creative Facebook page. <laughs> yes. And Got a bit be able of to cast your votes there, and we'll reveal the result on next, the next episode. episode. All right. <laughs>